All right, Wednesday, we're, that's when I'm leaving, head for Indiana. Wednesday around 11 o'clock, 11.30, probably about 11.30, I reckon. So, and amazingly, I talked to Mom last Sunday. She said the red raspberries haven't even started getting ripe yet. That is the, what, the latest I've ever heard of that happening. But they had a really cold spring, so it's all been delayed. So we're looking forward to that. Now, we have this uh, picnic coming up on the 10th. Um, at the lake, but October's coming up. And I had this brilliant, brilliant idea that I know you'll agree with. We need to have some, a chili or a Tex-Mex lunch one day after church. Would that be good in October? Kind of inaugurate the fall? We'll wait till kind of later on, hoping it'll be cooled off, you know, and it'll feel more like fall. But uh, if, if we, that'd be good idea. Now, come on, everybody's got to say, yeah, man, that's a good idea. There you go, okay. I feel better now, okay. That's a great idea. That's why I was really pumping that up, see. <laughs> chili in October, yeah, that's good stuff. We can have two or three, four different kinds of chili. That'd be good. All right. Now, we got this project that Jerry's talked about uh, that Ken Guth requested some help on with David Santos. Uh, pastor of a church there that uh, Ken's had a lot of influence with and and um, been able to share some books with and and uh, really has gotten excited about teaching the kingdom and in Trinidad. So we want to be a part of that. Then I've mentioned to you before about this end of the world project. It's a Bible distribution project that we've done before. It's end of the world simply meaning because it's in Ushuaia. Ushuaia is the considered the southernmost city in the world, and that's, of course, of any consequence. It's a city of about 60,000. It's in southern tip of South America in Argentina in this little area called Tierra del Fuego, the land of fire. And um, I don't know where that came from, if it was a volcano there or something like that or what it was. But I know there have been missionaries there years ago in the past. And I know, I know the first missionary that went there died of starvation. They found him by the ship. He, he just died. Now, there was just so little there. But, of course, now it's a much larger city and much greater services and all that sort of thing. So if you want to go on that project, don't, don't worry about starving. You'll be all right. Okay. And, again, I've said this, but I want to repeat it. Thanks to... Walt and Karen and Harris and John and all the work they do around here to keep this building going and uh, we're grateful and anybody else that I don't know about and all the ladies that bring all this food in and who Charlie oh yeah Charlie turned a screw in there and got the things adjusted the the valve in there that was I saw him doing that the other day and showed me how to do it I said I don't know how to do that and you go, oh, you re- I saw it was working really good. You replaced it. All right, well, see, he knows how to do that. I don't. So I'm glad for people that know how to do those things. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah? That's time. Uh, 
Oh, really? Well, that's how I fix them at work. One at BIMI does it, I just take my fist and I beat on it till it quits. <laughs> okay, well, we're glad for that because I did hear, I think he said if you hit them too hard, they will break. So uh, glad for that. We got it going. Okay, well, enough of that. Okay, First Timothy. We're going to continue on with um, a study in the book here, that letter that Paul had written to, to Timothy. And, of course, it's near the end of his life. He's been in ministry for quite a few years now, traveled all over the Middle East and the Mediterranean, taking the gospel, suffered a lot, persecuted a lot, been through the mill, as we would say it. And here he is, as it were, ready to pass the torch along to a younger protege, one who, whom he had mentored and had traveled with him much. And, of course, it's not his final letter. He's got one more to go here to Timothy, and he wrote one to Titus. We'll maybe look at those sometime. But, again, as you're well aware, final words often take interest to us. I was reading about a guy who was on his deathbed and he had a psalm put down right at the foot of the bed there where he could just see it and pray that prayer, that psalmist prayer, you know, every time he looked at it until he died. And, of course, you've read books of final quotes or last words of the dying and so on. And, you know, those kind of stick with us because it tells us what's on a person's heart. It really tells us a lot about where they are spiritually, how they've lived their life, what they value or hold most important. You know, you've read and heard the stories of people on their deathbeds crying and screaming as they face death, others totally at peace, smile on their face, at rest, confident in their, in their faith and so on. And that's Paul here. When we look at Paul, you know, he's extremely confident and settled in his faith. And it just seems so interesting to me in final words, what would you focus on? And Paul, of all things, is telling Timothy, warn those guys that are drifting off and getting away from the gospel. Warn those that are missing the mark or straying us away. They've, they've strayed or turned aside. And the fact that they were to have um, in this commandment, he says in verse 5, or this charge, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a faith unfeigned, or that unhypocritical faith, that pure, sincere, genuine faith. Things that they were to hold dear. And we made mention of this, the fact that in other connections, you see holding to a purity of doctrine or teaching also enables one to have a pure conscience. Because if you stray from the truth and you allow your mind and your heart to be muddled with lies or distortions of the truth where you have partial truth, and partial lie, which seem to be the most dangerous kind, warp your conscience. 
and it does not enable to you to live with a pure conscience. And, you know, Timothy, when Paul starts writing to Timothy here, he begins with this charge, this warning. And if you, when you come to the end of this chapter, you find him doing the same thing. He returns to it. But in the middle, he has not what we would call digressed in that he's gotten off the subject, but he digressed in that he's giving his personal testimony as to how the Lord does the things he's talking about with regard to faith. And, you know, he mentioned, in other words, in verse 8 about the law and how the law is a good thing if a person uses it lawfully. And the fact that a righteous man doesn't need the law. And a righteous man, of course, is one who has, you know, beyond the simple things of having received Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, and believed on him to new birth from above and understood the message that was proclaimed by Christ and his disciples concerning his rulership, his fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies to be the coming Messiah, the King. But in addition to all of that, that one is now living in accordance with that gospel. And that's a righteous person one who's living in accordance or in obedience to that gospel. And he's saying that the law is not made for a man like that. He doesn't really need it. The law is made for the lawbreakers. And those, he names all these various things here that are some have paralleled with the Ten Commandments, to some degree at least. It covers you know, most of the Decalogue. But Paul then moves on in verse 12. We saw last week. He said, I thank or I'm continually thanking Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me or empowered me, strengthened me to what? To be the, a preacher of the gospel. To, he, he says they're putting me in service. Not ministry in the sense of professional ministry. Not as a preacher, but he put him in service. And the, word, the article, the, is not in the Greek there. He said, so in other words, what he's saying is, is that he has strengthened me for that he counted me faithful, putting me in service. And that word service there, or ministry, it has to do with um, um, one who is... Um, Belonging to someone and carrying out their orders. One who does what he's told to do, in other words. It's where we get our word for a deacon. It has to do with service. So he put him in service is what he did. And it carries with it that idea of carrying out the commands then of someone else. Whoever it is you're serving. And the whole idea then of, of being faithful then carries with it the idea of being trustworthy. God found Paul to be somebody trustworthy that he could entrust 
to put into his own service and to be a preacher of the gospel. And so consequently, in view of all that, then we see why Paul was so stringent to encourage or exhort, or actually the word there is command or charge Timothy about those who were straying away from that very gospel, deviating from it. And so in verse 13, he's giving us the huge contrast between what he was before Christ and what he became after he had received Christ, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. A blasphemer just means in its basic sense to speak evil or revile someone. The way we use it today, when we say something's a blasphemous remark, we tend to think, well, there's somebody speaking evil of God. But you can blaspheme a man or another person. Then he says he's a persecutor. Well, we know, we know Paul was a persecutor. He went to the nth degree, traveling to foreign countries to hunt down Christians and have them put to death because of their proclamation that this one Jesus from Nazareth was the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. And Paul says he did this ignorantly. And it was because of that that God showed mercy to him. So all the while he's out traveling around, killing Christians, persecuting them, being insolent towards them. That's what the word injurious means. He was insolent towards them. God was being patient and waiting for the right time when he, well, not Damascus Road. I mean, at a specific place, at a specific time, when God dealt with him about who he was and who his son Jesus was. And, of course, it it was a dramatic change in Paul's life. And the reason was because he did it ignorantly. Now, there's a difference between you and I acting on the basis of ignorance and then acting on the basis of a willful heart or a rejection of God. That's one thing. Paul, Paul was a godly person. He was a godly Jew. And what he was doing, he was doing for God. And he felt like he was being righteous in doing what he was doing till God showed him the better way when he showed him the truth about who the Lord Jesus Christ was. And when he revealed himself then on that Damascus road, oh, what a change in Paul's life. Completely the other way. And now he became not the, well, if we have to jump ahead, we find that he says he was the chief of sinners. Now we find him being the chief of saints. And so we see this great big turn and flip-flop, as it were, because of his receiving the knowledge of Christ as Messiah. In other words, it took knowing. It took an exercise, and that word know, it took an exercise of the mind to receive knowledge and understand 
who Christ was, and it brought about this dramatic change in his life. Look over at Hebrews chapter 5 for a moment, (coughs) just a few pages over to the right. Hebrews 5.1, you know, one of the big arguments in the book of Hebrews is the superiority or the primacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and especially concerning the priesthood. And if you look at verse 1 of chapter 5, it says there, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant? That is, on the unknowing. You know, see, God extends wrath and judgment on the willful rejecters, but on the ignorant, he has compassion or mercy. And that's exactly what happened to Paul. God showed him mercy in his ignorance. He did it in unbelief. Why? Because he didn't have any knowledge base to believe on. That's why the foundation of faith always rests in knowledge. You can't have faith without knowing the truth. And that's why, you know, if you're going to get really technical, some philosophical type people would call it propositional truth. The Bible sets forth certain propositions that are true. And then it's up to you and I to accept it and believe it. And that's exactly what happened to Paul. Once the Lord Jesus Christ was set before him, then he acted on what he knew. And he responded in faith. Well, in verses 14 and 15 then, he says, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. I mean, it was beyond, hyperabundant is what the word really is, and some translate it superabundant. Well, that was because Paul was a chief sinner. Chief in the sense of being of rank. Not the first sinner, but not, not this way in time, but this way in rank. He was at the top, and God brought him full orb around the other way because of his super abundant mercy. And he says he did it with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Both of these things residing in Christ. And it turned Paul's life around. You know, it was just an amazing, amazing transformation that took place. But notice he goes on to say, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation or full, complete acceptance or approval. Worthy to be received, this saying is, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, foremost, first in rank. And why was that? Why was it that God then chose such a man? Because he was faithful in what he had been doing as a persecutor. And now when he receives Christ, he's faithful 
beyond measure in what he's doing for Christ because God counted him trustworthy, somebody who he could entrust with the gospel. And he tells us in verse 16 regarding that, how be it for this cause. So God had a specific purpose with the apostle Paul in choosing him to be this great apostle that he was, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering. That long period of of patience, longanimity, Strong says you would literally call that, this longness, if you could say it that way, just waiting, waiting, waiting patiently on Paul in order that he might accomplish his purpose through him to show forth this mercy. He says for a pattern, a pattern or a type. It's hupo tupas, a striking image or model or pattern, a sketch. Paul, as it were, is the model Christian. He pictures in every instance what it is that Jesus Christ does in the transformation of a sinner who receives him as Savior and Lord. Paul, you know, there's nobody... No Idi Amin, no Hitler, no Hussein or bin Laden that could claim they're too great a sinner to come to Christ. That's what this verse is really telling us, or these verses. Because Paul is first in rank, foremost as a sinner, anybody who looks to God for mercy through Jesus Christ, his son, will receive it. Is it carte blanche? I think that's the word you use. It's done. So there's no need to doubt or wonder, could God save such a sinner as me? I remember the preacher at my grandmother's funeral telling that very story about her. They had been invited to, uh, they're in their 70s now, and had been invi- and didn't go to church at all, and had been invited to go to church by a neighbor. This neighbor, I think, had invited them several times, and they finally decided to go. And then after, I don't know if it was the first service or maybe a time or two that they had gone, at her funeral, he said, I got a call. Want to know if I could come out and pay him a visit? He said, I did. And my grandmother said to him, could God save a sinner like me? And he told her, you're just the kind he died for. You know, that's true of everybody. It's true of all of us. We're just the kind he died for. That's why we can look with, to Paul as an example or as a pattern or a model of what God does in saving 
a person from their sins. But you'll notice he didn't just stop there with saving. But there was a purpose. There's an end in view. And that is, he says, to them which should hereafter. That's you and me. And everybody else that came after Paul. Believe on him to life everlasting. Or as we know, life age abiding. So the context in view there is to a certain purpose. And it's the fulfillment of that kingdom gospel that Jesus proclaimed, that all of his apostles proclaimed, his disciples, along with the apostle Paul. And now Paul is passing on to Timothy, admonishing him, commanding him to warn those who have received Christ Jesus as their Savior and their Lord, and they've acknowledged the life that he promises in this gospel, but now they've missed the mark, he says back there in verse 5. Was it 5? 6? They've missed the mark and swerved aside or turned aside to other things. And so now they've gotten caught up in Things that do not promote the plan of God, as he said back in verse 4. He said these, these things minister questions rather than godly edifying. And we found that many other manuscripts have a different word there. These things do not uh, or, or do minister rather, he says, the stewardship of God. The plan of God. Preaching those things does not further God's plan regarding what's yet to come in the future. And so Paul continues on. You know, that's his whole plan here is to show forth how God has used him and how he called him and the purpose for which he called him to set him forth as a pattern so that all might follow after what Paul taught. A very simple thing, it would seem. But oh, for the flesh and the whims of man who want to get off into other things. And they got off into genealogies and idle talk and all kinds of other things that just did not promote godliness. And so he, Paul, it's like he gets caught up in the whole idea and the whole way in which God has used him. And he closes with this doxology. Now unto the king of the ages. Literally there. That's what it says. The king of the ages. The one who is supreme over all the ages and all the things that are happening throughout those ages. Immortal. That is the one who is incorruptible. The God who is incorruptible. Imperishable. To the invisible. That is, as opposed to all of God, God's creation and what is visible and all that man focuses on in the visible world. The only wise God. The only God. No other. He says, to him be honor and glory unto the ages of the ages. 
and I don't know how long that is, but it carries us out for quite a while into the future. And so as Paul begins to wrap this chapter up then, he moves back to this command that he'd given to Timothy. Because you remember in verse 18, we saw this last week, this charge that I commit unto thee, son Timothy, it's the same charge we saw back in in verse 3 where he said um, (coughs) somewhere there in verse 3, he says that thou mightest charge some Command some that they teach no other doctrine. And this is, of course, you remember in Ephesus in the earlier part of that verse. Well, if you turn back to Acts chapter 20, you find an encounter there where Paul was in Ephesus. And it's quite a striking passage and an important one. And I guess we'll start with um, verse 17, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. It says, and from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. So he wasn't exactly in Ephesus. He had called for them to come to where he was going to be. (coughs) And he he begins to uh, preach to them. It's his last time he's going to see them. And he knows that. He tells them in verse 21, or verse 20, he says, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. Now, there's a good contrast between them and what the false teachers were doing. That those who were teaching error were doing nothing that was of any profit. Paul says, I held back nothing that was of profit to you. But I have showed you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews... And also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 24, he says, None of these things move me, neither, that is, the fact that what Paul, the Holy Spirit had shown Paul was going to happen to him in the future, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. See, Paul had a good conscience. He had a pure faith for In verse 27, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God or all the purpose of God, the whole purpose of God. Take heed therefore. See, then once he's presented and and, and reminded them that I have taught you the truth, the whole purpose of God, then he turns to warn them and admonish them. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost 
hath made you overseers. Now, they were the elders, but they were, their job was to be an overseer of the flock, to help them stay true to the faith, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For, this, uh, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise. This is the people Paul are talking to Timothy about. From their own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples it's to draw away the disciples after them. So in other words, those who had become disciples of Christ, they had received this kingdom gospel. Paul's warning them that there are going to be people coming into your flock, teaching things that are of no profit, all for the purpose and goal of drawing away disciples after themselves. Therefore, he says in verse 31, watch. Watch. Be spiritually alert on your toes at all times because these people are out there. Paul's just simply passing on this message now to Timothy. Look out, Timothy. My command to you is this. He says it back in verse 18. I charge you this command, he says, I commit unto thee. That word commit just means I have set this before you. It means to set something along beside. It's like if I had something here and I came and laid it down beside you and didn't speak a word, you know, you'd kind of get the idea that you were wanting me to look out for that. Or I was wanting you to look out for that, whatever it is. That's the idea here. Paul has set alongside Timothy a charge concerning this gospel, a deposit, as it were, entrusted to him. So Paul had a lot of confidence in Timothy. And this all, he says, was according to the prophecies which went on before thee. Now, there's a, you know, when did that happen? I don't know of any passage that speaks specifically <coughs> of any prophecies concerning Timothy, although I think it's in Titus, there's one, or Second Timothy, rather, about the gift, the prophecy uh, concerning the gift that he received from the laying on of hands. And that may be what Paul's talking about here, where, where in the laying on of hands... Timothy was, as we would say it, ordained, entrusted with the gospel, to be a preacher of the gospel and to carry out those things which the Lord had entrusted to him. But he says then that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. You might fight a good fight then or might be fighting a good fight because that first war there is in the present tense, that you might be warring a good warfare, fighting a good fight. It's going to be a continuous battle right up to the end of your life. And, of course, we know that God has provided us the armor as a believer. 
in Ephesians 6, that we might carry on that fight. But it's also important for us to understand so much of the fighting of a Christian all has to do with things happening here on earth. You know, preserving our country, fighting for the flag, and it's against abortion and, you know, murder and all these other kind of drugs, all kinds that are good things. But the kind of fighting Paul's talking about is in the heavens. It's a spiritual warfare. And it's something you ought to stop and take note of and ask yourself. You know, do that little self-examination and say, have I really entered into that warfare? Because if all of our focus is down here and we're fighting the fight down here, boy, we've missed it. You've missed what the battle is really all about. It's all heavenly. It's all spiritual. So, consequently, Paul's admonishment to Timothy then, he says, concerning this, holding faith. Maintain faith, Timothy, as opposed to some, he says, having put away concerning the faith. And that word put away there means to cast off or to reject or repudiate it. And so consequently, we need to see here that it's possible to reject our own faith. What we have or had and then give it up and quit, as it were. What does a person look like or what is the condition of a person who has actually done that? They've just given up on faith. I mean, they became weary in the battle, tired, and just said, I don't know if I can just keep doing this day after day after day, the spiritual battle, getting up and fighting again. Of course, forgetting that God has empowered or strengthened us, as we saw last week, to keep on in the battle every day. Look with me just quickly over to uh, James chapter 2. And then if you get there early, go to 2 Peter and chapter 1. In, in James chapter 2 and verse 17, this is the well-known passage concerning faith and works and so on. But look at verse 17, where he sa- look what he says there regarding faith. He says, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. You know, it's possible to have a dead faith. If your faith is not active and alive and vibrant in your daily walk and you've given up, as we find back here in in Timothy that Hymenaeus and Alexander had done, then their faith is dead. It has no life to it. That's the context of what James is writing in. 
Second Peter chapter 1. And look at verse 8. Now, of course, Peter is admonishing believers to move on in their faith and so on. But he says, and he says back in verse 5, to give all diligence, to add to your faith, virtue and virtue, knowledge and knowledge, temperance and so on, to add all these things to your faith. But notice what he says then in verse 8, for if these things that he just mentioned are be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here, if, if you don't progress in faith and add these things to faith, in other words, if you're not a growing Christian, then you have a barren faith. You have an unfruitful faith. You have faith. It's just unproductive. Or as James says it, it's like a, it's like a dead body. If Faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. You know, and over, look at verse 26 in James. Go back to James chapter 2, verse 26. He says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So the illustration there is like if you got a live body, you know, you see the life. It has life in it and a spirit. But if the body is dead and it's going this way, horizontal, you still have a body, it's just a dead one. And Paul, well, James and Paul are arguing the point that if we have a living faith and vibrant, then we have Christ and we have fidelity to the gospel. But he says if you turn from that, if you give up and quit, you still have faith, but it's dead and it's barren and it's unfruitful. And that we need to run from. He holds out these two, Hymenaeus and Alexander, as examples of those who had made shipwreck of their faith. And he tells us here that he has delivered them unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, this apparently was the specific, this may be a comprehensive term and, you know, taking in all that they were involved in. And the whole purpose of turning them over to Satan was not to destroy them, but to bring them back. You remember over in Corinth, the young man who got involved in, in an incestuous relationship with his father's wife? And Paul told the church there, you toss him out. There it was excommunication from the body of believers. And the whole picture there was when you cast them out from the fellowship, the circle of believers, they were out under Satan's control. And the purpose then was to bring conviction, shame, repentance, and bring them back. And of course, when we get to 2 Corinthians, we find that apparently that had happened. He had repented, but the church hadn't welcomed him back. And Paul was admonishing them, bring him back in. If a person confesses and repents and turns from that sin, bring them back into the fellowship. You can get back on track again. You can live for the Lord again. 
And all of this, he's telling Timothy, all of this is within the context of that one gospel that Paul was so faithful to preach. And especially, he says, here at Ephesus. Because that was the place that I went about preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. I warned them that grievous wolves would come in. And now we find here in chapter 1, some have gone astray. Some have turned aside. They've missed the mark. And now Paul has charged Timothy to go and preach to those guys. That he had, these overseers, these elders, and tell them, get back on track. You better get back and preach the gospel as Paul preached it to you originally. And that's pretty strong medicine. But it sure is heartening to me. Because we know that if we stay true to his word, he's going to honor us and he's going to bless us. We will have his full favor. And so... That will enable us then to that one day to stand before his judgment seat, blameless. That's hard for me to comprehend in many ways. And if it weren't for all that happened to Paul and what God accomplished through him and the mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood, I wouldn't believe it could happen. But I'm convinced it can, even in a guy like me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to share your word, to believe it, to have it here in our own language where we can study it and understand the gospel, where we have tools available to enable us to study and to comprehend the things that you have revealed to us. Lord, it's with gratitude and, and, and thankfulness that we extend our hearts to you with joy and gladness because you have given us the truth of the gospel. Now may we be true to it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.